Hello, and welcome to the Project Good Podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good Podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people on the planet. For June, we're focusing on the food revolution. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Michael von Mossell, who's a professor and the OCA chair in food systems leadership at the Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics Department at the University of Guelph. His research interests include animal welfare and antibiotic use, food waste, retail and restaurant food demand, pricing, supply chain management, and value chain structure and performance. When Dr. Van Massau is not teaching, you can find him writing features about the changing landscape of food production and consumption and hosting the Food Focus podcast, which focuses on conversations and perspectives on issues of interest in the food system. His passion for animals and agriculture has made him a leading expert in the industry. Let's get into the interview. People worldwide have seen the rising food prices since the start of the pandemic, and now the war between Russia and Ukraine has exasperated the situation, breaking family grocery bills and causing people to re-examine how they eat. The last few years have impacted farmers, suppliers, food retailers, restaurants, and consumers in unexpected ways. That is why we have reached out to Dr. Van Massau, who specializes in examining how people think about food and how they make food purchase decisions. Additionally, he looks at how to meet the demands of consumers by understanding new ways to get food from the farm. Dr. Van Massau has experience working outside the world of academia in a variety of operations and marketing roles in the agro-food industry before he became a professor. He speaks frequently about food waste, animal welfare, and shares about research projects he is leading. He has strong presence in the media and has written for the Globe and Mail and is often quoted on radio. Welcome, Dr. Michael Van Massau. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And so before we get into the interview, I always want to know how people got to do what they, what started doing what they wanted to do. So how, I guess, did you become interested in food? I know we all eat, but um, <laughs> I guess what made you go this direction in your career in life? Well, that's that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I've 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 thought about it that explicitly before. Um, you know, I I was trained as an agricultural economist, and and a lot of my original training looked at sort of production economics, how farmers make choices, how farmers make choices about what they produce. Uh, but uh, and and that's where a good bit of my pro- professional career w- uh, uh, was was focused. When when I became uh, an academic, it struck me that probably the most important decision makers in the food systems uh, are consumers. And and we we hear a lot about sort of the divide between consumers uh, and 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 agricultural production and and food production and 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 frankly food processing and distribution as well we don't have a good idea about where it comes from so it struck me that that really if i wanted to understand the forces of of change in 
uh, in food systems, the the place to focus was at the consumer level. So that that's kind of it, it was it was really sort of academic curiosity uh, and and probably a little bit of serendipity finding some collaborators that 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 were interested in similar things uh, that led me on this path. And, and and you know once I got started, I started to dig in and 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 it's been incredibly interesting, incredibly rewarding, and uh, I have the best job in the world. I, I I get to have a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I was, you know, I've uh, one of the reasons I wanted to interview you because I did think it was an interesting field and I never thought about, um, you know, having like a career that you would look at um, both how, you know, consumers are looking at food and how, you know, um, I guess the process and production is uh, changing. Um, and especially, you know, food is important for literally everyone on the planet because we all have to eat to survive. So, you know, what a, um, you know, a, a vital role. Um, so, yes, uh, I'm so glad that I have a chance to get to speak with you. And especially right now, because uh, <laughs> the world of food is, uh, I guess you would say, changing and in some ways, I'll say in danger um, uh, of how um, uh, we need to uh, think about our food for the future. Um, with so much, um, I guess uh, you would say, uh, problems and um, situations that are uh, occurring um, on the planet. Um, one of the biggest things, of course, that affects each person um, daily is uh, the rise in uh, the cost of food. I'm sure you um, even personally have seen that. Um, and I know, of course, you're on top of it as you are in the field. Um, so what do you think or um, what are the different things that are uh, currently contributing to this rise in the cost of food? Well, I think what we're seeing really now is a perfect storm uh, of factors that are that are driving food prices up faster than we have seen them go up uh, in a long time, and and I mean across the board food prices, and and we have sort of individual things that that we can look at that we've seen in the past. We've just not seen this combination of things. Uh, so I, I I would argue this combination of things. Uh, sort of coming together, as I said, in a perfect storm. So let's start with the most recent, which is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, and and it, it it impact food impacts food prices sort of through three primary uh, uh, three primary things. The fir the first being uh, the Ukraine and Russia too are significant contrib contributors to uh, world trade in wheat. Uh, and so uh, they're not, uh, they represent not 30% of the production of wheat, which is a, a quote I've seen a, f a few times and is incorrect, but 30% of the trade in wheat. And, and that's an important mm. distinction because China and India are large producers of wheat, but because of their huge populations, they consume a lot of, of what they produce. And so they don't contribute to trade which impacts prices. So when you take that wheat off the market, um, it, wheat prices go up. And so that affects us in North America, even if we're not eating Ukrainian wheat because the world price of wheat goes up. And, and so anyone buying wheat has to pay a higher price or they'll lose the opportunity to buy it. For us, it means that life gets more expensive. If you are uh, uh, a customer in North Africa, the Middle East, uh, uh, of of the Ukraine, in the short run, you may actually have shortages uh, of wheat and sh and food shortages, and and so an exacerbation of already sort of tenuous 
food security. But for us in North America, it means wheat prices are going up. And and here in Canada, we've seen bread, a direct result, we've seen bread and other wheat-based products increase in price, flour, all of those. So so that that's the first impact. The second impact is Russia and and the Ukraine are also significant ex- producers and exporters of fertilizer. Uh, and so with, with that not flowing, we're seeing dramatic increases in the price of fertilizer. So the cost of producing food, not just wheat, but across the board, uh, is going up. And the final thing is less Ukraine, but Russia is a significant exporter of, uh, of petroleum products. And again, that's raising the cost of not just producing food, but also distributing food. So, so that, that, that impacts across the board. I'm going to go back to the start there for a second, if you'll indulge me and say, wheat is the big one, but we're also seeing similar things happening with vegetable oils. Um, that is, uh, uh, the Ukraine is a significant uh, exporter of sunflower oil. Uh, and so sunflower oil has gone up in price, as have uh, the the prices of many of those substitutes. And we see other countries responding to that. Um, Malaysia has curtailed uh, the export of palm oil to keep the domestic price of palm oil a little bit lower. Uh, Argentina has has increased the cost of exporting and also decreased the volume of exports to keep the large populations of urban poor uh, with with wheat and flour-based products that are are more affordable, but that exacerbates the international market. So th- those are driving those are driving prices up, sort of across the board and on those products specifically. The other thing we're seeing is uh, extreme climate change, extreme weather events, uh, driving, uh, production impacts. So last year in Western Canada and in Western U S, uh, we had significant dry weather, uh, yields were down. So production was down. We also saw grass, uh, production go down and hay production go down. So that meant cattle had less, the uh, cattle farmers had less feed available. We saw the, 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 the reduction in, in some herds in, in the Western plains, uh, of North America, which will lead to not only current increases in in primarily beef uh, beef prices but uh, across the uh, uh, but those should we would expect last for a while because the biological process of beef production we've we've taken some inventory out so some stock of breeding animals out and it takes a while to rebuild and and you know there's natural gestation periods and growth and mm-hmm. all of that so that's likely to stick with us for a while so the extreme weather events you know those of you in the in the southwest of the US know that water levels are 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 very low uh, in many of the irrigation reservoirs so that will affect not just production on the uh, on the prairies but uh, production in some of those uh, areas uh, like California, Arizona, that are are highly dependent on on irrigation. So, so we're seeing the climate change impacts. We're seeing ongoing impacts of uh, of COVID, and in fact, we're seeing a reemergence of lockdowns in China, uh, which uh, slow down the movement of products, slow down the production of products. Uh, and and make the the sort of disruptions to the supply chains that we've seen the reduction in capacity caused by both uh, uh, stuff coming out of 
out of the loop, but also by how much longer it's taking to get things offloaded means that there, uh, the, 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 the struggles to hire truckers, as an example, all of those mm -hmm. supply chain disruptions are also driving up prices. So we've got this kind of perfect storm of impacts, any one of which would have been significant, all happening at the same time and driving up prices uh, significantly. You know, I just want to say, I feel like we're stuck. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess where, where, how long, I guess, is this all just really dependent on uh, the war? Because even, um, I don't know, I'm sure you've probably looked at some of the war zone pictures. Um, I think that cleanup in Ukraine is going to take quite a while. <laughs> well, um, uh, oh, go yeah, ahead. You're, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, it, it's... It, this isn't uh, this, you know, a few years ago uh, when you guys had frost in California in February, we saw the price of cauliflower go up uh, for a few weeks uh, here in Canada because some of the cauliflower was 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 impacted by frost. Uh, we had the opportunity to say, well, we just won't eat cauliflower the next few weeks. Or we say we'll eat expensive cauliflower, but we know it's going to get cheaper. Now we a, we're, it's harder for us to find products that are cheaper because it's really cost increases across the board. And B, this doesn't look like it's a short-term thing. I would say uh, even if the war were to end tomorrow, and unfortunately it doesn't look like that's going to happen, we've got, uh, we've got disruption in production, which will affect yields as we get through this fall. But we've also got significant damage in the export uh infrastructure in the Ukraine that will take some time to rebuild. Railways have been damaged, shipyards have been damaged, all of those sorts of things. So it's not something that we are going to, to uh, be able to change with the snap of a finger. It's not just getting beyond that little bit of the crop that was, 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 was influenced by, by frost. The, the, the impact of drought uh, remains to be seen. Um, I know in Western Canada, in some parts of Western Canada that were really worried over the winter that it was still dry, have gotten some rain, um, have gotten some snow late in the spring, which which uh, increases moisture. So things are looking a little bit better. But in parts of the U.S., we had dry, we had wet springs last year and then dry uh, summers and, and yields were down. So it's hard for me to to look in a crystal ball and say what's going to happen there. I think there is potential for relief from some of these supply. I think we'll see some of these supply chain disruptions uh, decrease over time. So we'll get some relief there. Uh, depends if we're blessed with rain or not, whether whether we see some relief in the fall. But but I'm not expecting that that food prices will that we'll see a whole lot of relief from this food price inflation uh, much before 2023 and potentially beyond that wow i guess one of the things i've been seeing just um you know obviously all of these things are interconnected and i think that is um i'm just going to answer one of my own questions that i was going to ask is that uh, I think the pandemic and, um, of, of course, now with the, the war in Ukraine and Russia has really showed, I think, the world how, how much we're interconnected. 
<laughs> and um, you know, uh, if anything, I guess uh, 2020, as uh, 2020 vision keeps opening our eyes more and more, uh, it's time for us to wake up. Um, so I guess that's leading me to uh, this uh, push. I'm, I'm in California. So California, you know, is already a, a state that uh, likes to uh, push their um, uh, health foods and green drinks and um, stuff like that already. Um, but now for, I guess, the general and even the global population, um, trying to push more to a uh, plant-based diet, do you think that's going to really save us um, from different things such as climate change? Um, will it help us, um, I guess, in the short term um, because we because of the need for uh, obviously livestock to um, eat grass and things like that. And then because of, of course, the, uh, you know, natural gestation that we, you know, don't have the meat available. Um, do you think that's going to save us in this situation or at least alleviate? Should we um, start pushing more people to be uh, plant-based? That's what I'm seeing anyways in the grocery stores here in California is that, uh, you know, even chicken, which used to be the cheap meat, <laughs> is skyrocketed. Uh, so, uh, and there seem to be pushing more and more of these uh, veggie burgers and, uh, um, I don't know, soy, soy-based uh, foods and things like that. You think that is the way that people shall short, start uh, looking um, in, a, in order to, I guess, uh, contribute to hopefully... Uh, uh, give time for, I guess, uh, regrowth for the animals and everything, or, or is that really not going to solve the problem if we all switch to uh, plant-based eating? Well, I, I, th I think there's a there, 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 it's it's an interesting question, and I, I think there's a couple of things we need to we need to think about there. Uh, plant-based eating isn't necessarily going to cost us any less, so it's not going to to provide us relief from from these, these increasing prices, because uh, the evidence, at least here in Canada, is that the, the plant-based alternatives are going up at the same rate that the, that the animal-based protein products are going up. So, that, that's, uh, so, so it's not about to provide us relief from, from price increases. Uh, you know, we, we've had some areas of drought as well, so just just as we have had issues with beef and and with the cost of feed for chickens and 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 hogs and other things we've also seen yield reductions on on lentils and peas and 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 some of those sorts of things and frankly we have to make some adjustments and that's where we get into what we started talking about is is people making decisions so i think that there is a real opportunity to diversify our diet and i think that uh, you know most North Americans aren't ready to go entirely plant-based, but I think where there's a real opportunity is to have an increased diversification in their diet. So rather than saying you should never eat meat, chicken, or pork again, we're, we're, we, we, we will say things like perhaps you should eat it a little bit less. It gives you a more interesting and varied diet. Uh, it has the potential, depending on the circumstances and what you're eating, uh, to provide some emissions relief. Um, it, it, it has the potential, uh, again, depending on how you're eating it and what you're eating it and how much you're eating, to, to uh, give you a bit more balance and healthfulness in your diet. So I think that lots of people, me included, are uh, A, eating 
less meat, we're probably overeating protein anyway, and diversifying my protein sources. So that's where I think people are going to make more of a difference uh, rather than rather than changing a whole hog, uh, pardon the pun, uh, it was unintended. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but, uh, but, but, but I think that that's where we're going to make, where, where we're going to make a bigger, make, make a bigger difference. I think though, that the reality, and I'm going to challenge, if you'll let me a little bit, the premise of your question. Uh, I think we often look for the silver bullet. I think we often look for the answer to, to issues that we have. And, and the truth is we have some big and pressing and complex problems and, and that we will, uh, that we will deal with those within the food system incrementally and, and not say, well, everyone needs to eat plant-based or we need to do this entirely. A, it's going to be tough to achieve and B, there, there isn't a single answer. You know, we see it. If we step back, we see the discussion from agriculture as well, saying, "Look, cars are much bigger emitters than 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 agriculture generally, or animal agriculture specifically. Deal with that first. Or uh, India and China are much bigger emitters than we are in North America. We should, if they're not willing to make a difference, why should why should we? And the truth is, we're going to deal with these issues." incrementally and we all have a role to play and and uh you know traditional livestock are looking at ways to reduce emissions from livestock we're seeing things like feeding uh, uh feeding cattle different things uh producing cattle in different ways rather than you know with with more pasture based uh, uh with with sequestration we're breeding differently uh, you know, moving some people to increasing their plant-based. Um, you know, we're seeing a rise of cellular agriculture where we're, where we're going to these lab-grown meats or or uh, fermentation products that will produce food I- in different ways. I think that that the answer is yes to all of these things uh, that will continue to allow us to make progress. Uh, but hanging our hat on one is dangerous. So uh, the, the short answer to your question is, yes, we should all be eating a little bit more plant-based. Uh, but if if that's the only thing we do, we won't deal with the fundamentally larger challenges that we have as a civilization. Yes. And you, you mentioned one thing that... Um... I know has been a controversy for some people, especially, um, uh, you know, in the COB 26, when it came up about uh, for farmers and, and cows and things like that, uh, people were talking about uh, climate change and how uh, farms were, um, you know, uh, com- contributing at a large level for global warming. Um, one of the big questions, though, of course, with all of the um, thoughts of lab-based meats and I think this is a perfect question for you. Are people interested? In, have you seen people that are really interested in eating that? I know there's always the outliers that, you know, they'll, they'll eat whatever. Um, but in general, have you found that people are, I guess, open to and uh, I guess like to eat these lab-based meats? Well, so, so I'll answer that in two ways. The first is uh, there are... Not many, but there are some products on the market. You can go to Shanghai. Well, you can't go to Shanghai today uh, because they're locked down. But uh, when they're not locked down, you can go to Shanghai today uh, and uh, and and for twenty five dollars US get a 
get a plate of, uh, of lab-grown uh, chicken nuggets. Uh, and so uh, if the price is right, I think that there are people who will, who will eat it. I think there are some people who will be more nervous about it. Uh, there's a company there in California, Perfect Day, that is producing through fermentation uh, dairy proteins um, we're not, we're not, we can't do milk yet cause we're not good at fat, but we can produce casein and, and whey, which are dairy proteins. And those are going into, uh, uh, into frozen desserts, sort of plant-based ice creams, if you will. Uh, uh, because I didn't know this before, but I, I always thought ice cream was about the fat and the cream, but it's also about some of that protein and how it feels in your mouth. So a, a lot of those frozen desserts that are, are plant-based fats actually still have some dairy proteins in them to give you that mouthfeel the way you like it. Perfect Day has got one that, that is non-animal dairy, quote-unquote dairy proteins. So uh, people are uh, out there and eating it today. I think if we get it to... Uh, if we get it to the point where it's economical, and, and I know there's a ton of research happening now, when we get it to the point where it's economical, there will be, there will be clearly be demand. Uh, there will be people who are less enthusiastic about it, obviously. Um, uh, but, but again, I think what we're seeing is a diversification of choice rather than uh, an emergence of a complete replacement. It's not the, and, and, and again, uh, I apologize for the pun, but this time it's intended. It's not apocalypse cow, uh, <laughs> but, but there is a real opportunity for a segment of the market to go that way. Again, some people will say, you know, real beef is a treat. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things we aren't good at yet, but I'm told is coming is grow is is producing muscle cuts. So we can't replicate a steak or a chicken breast uh, yet. Right now we're 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 better at sort of these masses of cells which which replicate ground meat, uh, but we're working on uh, creating those muscle fibers, which has a different feel in our mouth and a, and a different eating experience. So um, if we get products. That, that do a good job of giving people what they want. I think we will see uh, those products take a, uh, take a, a place in the marketplace. Uh, I don't think it's the end of animal agriculture, but I think that, that uh, it will take a share of animal agriculture and it will drive innovation and change in animal agriculture as well. Now, one thing I noticed when you're 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 explaining food, you keep um, talking about kind of the the texture and the feel um, that people have in their mouth. Um, and I guess when I I, I think of um, the food, I'm always thinking of, of taste. But I guess uh, since you are in the food industry, is I guess t uh, the texture. Um, it's almost like. Um, I guess lack of better term is it a way in the way of like tricking people's brains that they are eating, um, uh, you know this uh, this burger or this you know ice cream because the texture is the same even if it's not um, uh, truly uh, the meat that they're used to is that like a, I guess an, a, an extremely important component when um, they're creating. Uh, I guess these um, lab grown foods, because I always thought about taste because, that, uh, you know, well, I think about taste and then I think about um, 
one of the my hesitations with lab grown uh, meats and things is about um, uh, nutritional value. Now, I know sometimes they say they put more in there, but then I'm like, do I really need more? Because I, I, I guess I'm kind of a naturalist. I like what comes out of the earth because I, I hope it has the right nutrients that they're, you know, uh, that's how I kind of look at things. So I get a little bit apprehensive, I guess. Yeah, and and and, mm-hmm. and 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 I appreciate that, Emery. I think I think that 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 you're not alone in that. So I'm gonna. I, I apologize if I'm being long-winded, but but you're you're asking sort of good questions. So the first thing is, we're seeing a lot of these product developers trying to mimic uh, the foods that we're eating. So you know, they put the heme in the Beyond Beef or the Impossible uh, Patty. Uh, to try and replicate what what biting into a burger is like, so that there is some suggestion that it'll be easier to get people to transition uh, if, if we give them a similar experience. Texture is important. That that experience we have of eating something, if if it's a good texture or frankly it's a bad texture, so flavor matters. Taste matters smell matters what it looks like matters we eat with uh, what you've heard people say we eat with our eyes so all of that is part of the experience and and mouthfeel and texture matters a lot too a lot of these products that have been coming in to sort of be analogs if you will of our traditional products uh, have tried to make it easy to switch uh, rather than uh 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 by, by saying we're giving you something that's almost the same experience. So even if we don't give people the exact same experience, it still has to be pleasant from a texture perspective. It still has to be, uh, it still has to work for us. Nutrition matters. Clearly one of the complaints of some of these plant-based meat analogs is the degree of processing and the degree and, and the, um, the number of in- ingredients in there that makes, as you said, makes people nervous. Um, mm-hmm. I think where we're really going to make uh, make a difference uh, is in helping people experience a greater diversity of uh, of foods uh, and saying, look, you can you, you they're they're not only good for the planet, they're not only uh, good for your health, but man, it's awesome trying new and different things. Uh, and and it doesn't have to be exactly like the burger you get somewhere or exactly like the ground beef you get somewhere. You know, if you, if you look at some of these uh, high-end protein legumes and things like that, you know, there are some amazing dishes from parts of the world where, where animal protein is eaten much less that that aren't exactly like your burger or aren't exactly like your chicken nugget or aren't exactly like your steak, but are awesome, right? I mean, some Indian curries with lentils or, or you know, some, some stews with, with, with peas that are rich in nutrition. I think we need to open our minds uh, and say it doesn't need to be exactly the way we've had it in the past. It just needs to give us, it needs to taste good, it needs to be a good experience, and it needs to give us the nutrition we want. Now, there's also significant culture uh, and tradition involved. You know, to, to me, um, you know, it, 
this one is maybe a bad example I could, because I'm not a huge lover of Turkey, to be honest, the Turkey producers, uh, I apologize if you're <laughs> listening, but, uh, I, I, I'd, I'd much rather eat chicken. If I'm eating poultry, I find it moister and, 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 and that p- people will send me hate mail and say, well, you're just not preparing it right. But there is still something about Turkey and Thanksgiving. There's still something about Turkey and Christmas that 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 is culturally significant. So we need to we need to recognize that the reasons people eat and the way they eat depends on a whole bunch of different things, uh, and we need to find ways of making them comfortable with it. I, I think if we're going to make a significant shift to plant-based, which is where we started, frankly, uh, we are going to to have to get to products that are that are different from what we're familiar with. And I, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. We, we, you know, it, it becomes a bit more difficult because, you know, at, at a time when our ability to prepare food is going down, our, 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 uh, our food literacy, our food skills is decreasing. I'm making the argument that we need to eat a wider range of things. You know, we need to eat lentils and peas and they can be delicious uh they can be delicious they can be awesome they can be healthy uh even if they're not exactly like a burger or a steak or a hot dog or something and so so uh uh i'm not i i think i started by answering your question but maybe evangelized a little bit uh about about thinking differently about what we eat and how we eat it Yes, but you, you, I, I like what, where you were going because I, um, it actually, it's an article I read some years ago um, about expanding the expanding. I, I'm, I'm going to, I don't, well, I've been to Canada and um, so I know you guys like to, uh, well, if you're a foodie, I'll say, because there are people who are, that are just stuck in their, their box. But if you're a foodie, you like to explore lots of food and there's so many good restaurants in Canada. I could eat, eat all day, all week. It's, yeah. uh, it's delicious. Um, one of the things that uh, this article that I went read um, some years ago, they were talking about this um, expansion here in the U.S. of people jumping into, we have these um, like ethnic markets, I'm sure you have them in Canada too, and people were, um, you know, uh, going to these different, uh, let's say, you know, a Mexican market, a Middle Eastern market, and um, they were starting to buy up all these different things. And the people, and they started to become expensive because the demands for things have went up. Like strangely enough here, um, <laughs> they had, uh, I guess even was it last year or the year before I was in Whole Foods and Whole Foods was serving chicken feet. I was like, really? <laughs> chicken <Yeah>. feet? <laughs> I was like, I was like, really? <laughs> and people were like, yes, I need some chicken feet. I was like, uh, why? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, people ate that because they were like starving to death. Right. But you're right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, for some people, those are a delicacy. My, my son spent a semester studying in, in China and, and he's an adventurous eater. He ate brain and feet and stuff. And, and, and probably historically, We've eaten some of those things because we were loath to throw anything out, and 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 we were preserving it, um, uh, and and trying to extend it as far as we could. You know, my, I'm a first generation Canadian. My my parents came from Europe at the end of the Second World War and experienced hunger 
at the end of the war uh, and and we're you know we ate everything my dad who's 90 to this day still licks his thumb and picks up the crumbs from when he's finished a sandwich right he he just is loath to 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 waste anything so that was probably the genesis of eating feet but now people just like like the variety uh, and you're right we're seeing you know as we uh, uh, as we see a, a greater mingling of the people on the earth we're seeing immigration to north america is creating these opportunities to try and experience these uh the, 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 these different flavors these different foods from all over the place and frankly uh, what's what's led that is not those markets but those restaurants uh which which give us an exposure to it and then once we've tried it we say oh maybe we'd like to try and do that ourselves especially if you're a foodie then you go to that specialty market and 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 get that thing uh, you know get get those get those products but 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 to to me a big part of it has been in urban centers uh, and and the emergence uh, of of uh, of ethnic restaurants that introduce us to to these authentic foods and while we saw that sort of diminish a little bit during the lockdowns of covid um before covid here in canada we were spending um, somewhere between 35 and 40% of our food dollar on food prepared outside of the home. And in fact, you folks in the U S were upwards of 50%. So, so the, 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 the role of restaurants in, uh, letting us experience a broader range of foods uh, and flavors, uh, and then leading us to experiment more broadly has been profoundly, has been profoundly important. So I love, I live a little bit outside of a large urban center, my oldest son lives uh, in the heart of Toronto, uh, and one of the things I love to do when I go in and visit, particularly if we go in uh, without my wife, who is a little bit less adventurous, is going to try some some something really new and different, uh, which could be from a particular ethnicity, a particular region of the world. Uh, you know, my first sort of real plant-based experiences were at those kinds of restaurants. I think that becomes an important way to introduce us to them. Uh, but, but for sure, uh, the, 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 the migration of peoples has, has introduced anyone who is willing to a much broader palette of, of foods, flavors, uh, and experiences. Now with that, I, I of course, um, I'm a person, uh, my, my background, I'm, uh, uh, well, it's going to be a little different sounding. So I'm, uh, born in Jamaica, but I was raised Jamaican German. Yep. <laughs> so it's an interesting mix. Everybody's like, what a, what an opposite Jamaican German. <laughs> um, but, uh, but because of that, um, you know, my, my parents growing up, um, I had a, you know, probably wider range of, um, different things that I, um, have tried than most people in their lives. And uh, because I also love to, to, to cook, um, it also gives me, I guess, the feeling when I talk to different people, um, uh, since I always look at food as, uh, as culture, 
Yes. Um, especially, uh, you know, being Jamaican, a lot of people know Jamaican food or love it. You know, everybody has, uh, I always feel everybody has their say on Jamaican food and Jamaican everything. <laughs> and, and so since the food, food is culture and things like that. Um, I guess if we were going to, I always like to look at some silver lining, even in the difficulties of all these, uh, social problems, could it be that, um, in this crisis that we're experiencing with food, that it is our opportunity, I guess, to expand um, on our, our culture as, uh, you know, uh, more of a cultural exchange. Um, and in that, and if we look at uh, expanding as a cultural exchange, for instance, uh, when now it's become popular, but in Jamaica, there's a, a breadfruit and um uh, and you know, it wasn't uh, common, but now I see it everywhere. Everybody breadfruit and jackfruit everywhere. And I was yep. like, Oh, okay. <laughs> now people are like, Oh yeah, I'm making jackfruit tacos. And I was like, Oh, and I'm in target talking to someone. This random. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> and they're like, I have the best recipe <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, all right. Um, so it's, you know, is this maybe our opportunity in our, our way to, uh, I guess, bring ourselves out of when we're faced, uh, you know, um, with a crisis that I always look at crisis as an opportunity. So is this in our opportunity right now that we could um, create kind of uh, a global exchange in many levels, not only for food and culture, but it could possibly, you know, um, be help people globally economically if we start exchanging these different things and ideas is that uh, I know it's maybe far fetched, but is that something that could be realistic if we start looking at um, uh, exchanging um, food ideas, like not necessarily, even though I have tried it, a cricket taco, which is popular in Mexico. Yep. Um, is it, you know, um, uh, starting to, you know, uh, maybe go to Whole Foods now and you get, you know, three pounds of crickets. <laughs> yep. Well, I, I, I think, I think there's the, the, the again, a, a, a broad question with, with lots of different directions to, to, to answer, you know, I, I'd look at even internally in our country, some of the, some of the divisions and, and sort of the polarization we're seeing. And I think culture and food, I think, uh, exchanging, uh, maybe I'm sounding a bit like an idealist here, but, but exchanging a meal is, is an intimate act and it's tough to, it, it, it's, it's tough to not have a conversation. It's not impossible, but it's tough not to have a conversation while you're sitting down for a meal. So I think the, the exchange and the sharing of food is, a, it can, can be, uh, an awesome way to increase understanding uh, and 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 broaden your perspective. So I think that in and of itself is reason enough. I also think that if we look at the food experiences that other people have had, particularly people who are uh, who who don't have an have have incomes as high as we do and an abundance like we you know we are very privileged to live in North America and, and the availability of food and the variety of food. And frankly, notwithstanding the current price increases, uh, Canada and the US are the two countries in the world that spend the lowest proportion of their income on food. So, so we're really lucky. Uh, and so if for no other reason than just to increase understanding and, and, and exchange and sharing meals with a broader range of people, I think could, could be a, a, a profoundly positive thing. 
but but also some of those exactly those those examples you highlighted um you know uh Afri- african countries have been eating insects for 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 millennia uh because uh, there hasn't been an abundance and 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 it is one of the options and one of the ways uh, of getting uh of getting protein um for religious reasons hindus don't eat uh don't eat uh uh beef uh the the and uh, any bovine meat so so they've gotten really really good at, at uh creating delicious healthy foods from uh from pulses you know canada exports a ton of pulses from western canada uh to uh, uh, india and other asian countries and that's uh that's another place where we could learn to appreciate uh culturally but also from a health and nutrition perspective different ways of preparing pulses we look to africa to say yes uh that uh, uh, that insects are becoming an option so 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 i think both from a uh both from a saving the world perspective not to sound too idealistic but also from an exchange of ideas perspective that there is a, a real opportunity for us to 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 develop both a better understanding of each other a better appreciation of what we eat and maybe actually do some good uh for for both nutrition and the climate yes um Yes, yeah, so I want to this because you ended with the climate, and I want to make sure I address this just because this is a question that comes to me all the time, and people continuously talk to me about it. We're going to talk about the cow, yeah. <laughs> holy cows, right? Um, so, how everybody? I feel like the cow is the poor cow is under attack. <laughs> yeah. Everybody says that the cow is the you know the 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 largest contributor to global warming. And I have to put a question mark to that. The reason I put a question mark to that is that cows have existed a long time. Um, and uh, I know, obviously, we have, uh, you know, um, increased the growth because of our, our the you know, how many uh, we've made these farms and um, and how we are, are farming. You know, we have a lot, a lot, probably a lot more cows than maybe naturally would be happening. I'm not sure, of course. Um, but my big question always uh, comes up is, are cows really that large of a global warming contributor? And then also, okay, what happens then? Because people are saying, let's not eat beef anymore. But what do we do with these cows? Because then are we just going to kill them? And then if we kill the cows, we still have to eat them. And it's also another mess. So I just, I, I'm always left like, okay, well, what do we want to do? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. this is a good, it's a good question. And I, and, and, and I'm an economist, not a, not a, an animal scientist, uh, but, uh, but, but I've talked to a bunch of people. Uh, I, I, I would say my impression is, and, and Emery, I'll apologize. I'm not going to give you a definitive answer that, that cattle aren't as big a contributor to global warning, warming as some people will say, uh, and not as small as others will say. So do, do they contribute to global warming? Yes. Uh, is it 70%? Is it 5%? I, 
I, I don't know the answer to that. It's probably much closer to 5% than it is to 70%. Uh, and, and my expectation is it, de- well, no, I know that it depends on how you're producing that beef. Uh, it depends on what that animal's eating. It depends on what kind of system it's in. All of those, uh, all of those things matter. It also depends on what you account for. Right. And so, uh, if you if if you look back hundreds of years, uh, most of the Western Plains of Canada and the U.S. were covered with bison uh, that fed the Aboriginal communities uh, and and roamed and ate grass. and And part of the problem we have is is a lot of that natural grasslands is now gone to produce crops. Uh, so a lot of the carbon that would could be sequestered there isn't so should we be counting the carbon sequestration on grazing lands and so so again i'm raising a bunch of the issues that have been raised to me um is some of the beef that we're eating contributing to uh, greenhouse gas emissions yes how much of that i i will let the scientists argue about that uh, again, it's probably not as much as some people say and, and not as little as others say. Um, so what sh- should we stop eating beef? Uh, the answer is probably that's going to be tough to do. Probably no. Should we be paying attention to how our beef is raised? Yes. Should we be continuing to... And remember when I said that that the, 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 the plant-based and the, and the cellular egg, the lab-grown products are going to drive innovation, uh, mm-hmm. that there, that there will be, uh, you know, there are a bunch of really smart people looking at breeding animals, feeding animals, uh, in ways that reduce their emissions. And so I think that, that when we look back in 20 years, we'll say, you know, beef has a much smaller footprint than, than it, than it used to be, than it used to. Uh, and I also think that, uh, we'll be eating less beef for a variety of reasons in 20 years as well. So I think diversify your diet, eat more plant-based, uh, find ways to, uh, to think about how your, how your beef is produced, uh, and, and pay attention to, to the research as it comes forward. And, and we'll see improvements on several different fronts as we go forward. As for, if we if we decided to go to zero beef and and um, you know cattle are like humans they're, they're mammals uh, they don't live forever um, and so if uh, it wouldn't be you know we wouldn't be able to stop eating beef tomorrow but if as a civilization we said we weren't going to eat it anymore we could sort of wind things down over a number of years uh, and 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 not have domesticated beef animals anymore. I don't think that's where we're going to go. Uh, I think for a lot of reasons, but I, but I think we do need to pay attention to lessening the footprint of the animals we do eat uh, and, and perhaps diversifying our diet. So we eat less of those animals. Yes. Um, it's, it's good to hear someone say that the cows can stay. I'm a committed omnivore and, and, and mm-hmm. I am eating less beef, partly mm-hmm. because I'm getting older, partly because I'm diversifying my diet. 
but I still have to be honest that I love a piece of steak done on a, on a good barbecue with a little bit of Cajun uh, spice on it, you know, or, or when I'm being super indulgent, a nice piece of steak with, uh, uh, some melted blue cheese on it, uh, as I finish it on the barbecue. And, 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 and I, and I, I eat that with a clear conscience. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> uh, I, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that, yeah, we need to pay attention. We need to eat mindfully. We need to, we need to continue to find ways to do this better. Uh, but, but I'm not sure that, that, that again, to go back to my horrible pun that it's apocalypse cow anytime soon. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Cause it's uh yeah, I've had, I had to ask that question because it's been really bothering me. I'm like, it's called livestock for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Speaking of livestock and a role that uh, cows play, um, you know, I don't do any uh, uh, farming now, but even though I was born in Jamaica, I'm from the countryside of Jamaica. So I had, uh, there were farmers in my family. Um, So, you know, cows were, of course, valuable because of uh, helping add nutrients to the soil. Yep. Um, and and right now, one of the, the big things or it's predicted, um, I, of course, am not an expert, but just uh, this is what I've been reading, is that by like 2045, if we continue doing everything that we're doing currently, um, we'll be close to our last harvest and things will be even worse than they are now. Um, we might be, you know, uh, fighting for an apple on the streets. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, hopefully it doesn't. I'm like, I, I hope it doesn't get to that because I, I thought this would be happening in like, you know, uh, maybe the year like, uh, you know, 20, 20, 21, <laughs> 50 or something. Yeah. Like I thought I would be like dead and gone, but I was like, I might still be here actually. <laughs> so, um, so one of the, the question I wanted to ask you is about, and I know this is a little bit out of your wheelhouse, um, but about soil, um, and I, I wanted to ask you about soil for obvious reasons, because that's where our food uh, comes from. Um, and so is soil, uh, have you seen that it's in danger? What have you been hearing about soil? Should we really be concerned about soil or is that just, uh, just people saying something? No, I, I, I think there, I think there is a real issue there. I'm going to, and Marie do some self, shameless self-promotion if you'll indulge me is I, uh, because I didn't know a lot about it. I spoke to someone who is a soil expert on my, on my podcast and did two episodes. So if people want to hear the foundation of what I'm going to spend about the next two minutes talking about, they can go listen there. Shameless plug. Um, but there are, it, it's clear that, uh, we have not managed uh, our soil as well as we should have over the past 50 or 100 years as we've intensified agriculture. And, 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 and as we learn more, as we understand it better, there are things that, that we can and should do to improve the health of the soil. And, and when I say that, people sort of grimace and give me a furrowed brow and say it's dirt uh what are you talking about it but but uh these are uh soil is a dynamic ecosystem uh and there are lots of uh, 
bacteria in there, lots of small microbes. There are, you know, we've got the plants that grow on there, the animals that live under there. And we've got this sort of delicate balance that, that in, in some areas of agriculture, uh, we've disrupted and, and has made our soil less productive than it can and should be. Uh, and so it's clear now that, that, uh, progressive farmers are paying attention to that and saying, uh, you know, you know, I, to, to me, sometimes the S word is dangerous sustainability because it is so overused uh, as to be <laughs> meaningless. Um, but, but we need to think about what that land will produce tomorrow and in 10 years and in 20 years and not just what we'll produce this year. And we need to manage it. You know, I teach in a business school. We need to manage it uh, like an asset and, and, and not deplete it. And so we are getting better at it and we're doing things like cover crops. We're doing things like smart rotations. We're, we're getting away from the monoculture that we, that we saw of emerge as we pushed to to greater and greater production so uh, soil is at risk i think we understand that it's at risk i i think that a lot of people are working on uh working on things that will improve the health and productivity of the soil and we continue to learn more uh and 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 so uh while I think we need to be vigilant, I don't think we need to be concerned because we're we're understanding it better every day, and we're making sure that we uh, th that we do things that are smart and in the long term view. Now, where that's an issue sometimes uh, is in developing countries where mm -hmm. we're just trying to produce enough to eat, you know, this year. And, and, and so what I think, uh, we need to do is, is apply the research and, and, and learning we're doing in the developed world, uh, to some of those farms as well, so that we, that we, that we raise the, uh, that we raise the, the, the ability for them to produce food today and for them to produce food tomorrow, that, that, that we have a sustainable, uh, food production system that allows these people to, to, to thrive and survive. Yes. It's interesting. You bring that up. I have a prospective um, client actually that um, is out um, in the area of Nigeria and he was talking and his uh, project is about uh, farming and he was talking about uh, the use of over, uh, over fertilization, if that's a word, I guess, um, mm -hmm. of people uh, using too much uh, fertilizer um, and then what is happening because the ground there, you know, obviously um, those countries, they've been around for a long time and they're using, uh, you know, continuously using the same land. I'll just say like the, the land, for lack of a better term, gets uh, like burnt out essentially. Yep. Um, and, the, and, the and the nutrients are, you know, no longer there. And so then what happens is that um, what they are experiencing is that, uh, you know, they get uh, different sponsors, different countries, they sell, send them fertilizer and they say, oh, you just need to, you know, use fertilizer and they just, you know, pour on the fertilizer. But what happens is then the fertilizer, of course, goes into the ground, goes into the plants, and then the, the level of um, 
uh, fertilizer or whatever uh, is inside the fertilizer um, gets into the plant, but it's at levels that are uh, rather toxic, right? Because the ground doesn't have the ability anymore to, I guess, uh, absorb it and, and pull pull from it or whatever the ground is doing. I'm assuming yeah. that it's uh, uh, filtering it. Um, <clears throat> Not of uh, not understanding, you know, everything that's going on well, yeah, in the, the and, earth. And, 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 yes. and there are, mm -hmm. and there are characteristics. Organic matter mm -hmm. allows allows the soil to hold those nutrients more, so that they're not leached away. So you know, and again, I'm not a soil scientist, but but uh, uh, I know enough to be dangerous, Anne Marie. Uh, the the mm -hmm. uh, the if we don't think about the health of the soil and just say, oh, we can just fertilize the hell out of it and and that'll make up for what we don't get out of the soil. That's not going to work. We need the structure of the soil. We need the characteristics of the soil to be such that it can that it can translate and transfer those nutrients to the plants. Uh, and you know, we haven't done a good job of that in 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 North America in the developed world. We're starting to do a better job of it. but 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 sometimes when we are, looking at subsistence farming, uh, it, it's harder to take that long-term view if you're just trying to survive for the next few months. Uh, and so again, uh, it is important that as we understand these things better, uh, and as we provide development support, we do it in a way that, that allows this production to be sustainable and for that soil to be sustained uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that's critically important. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to bring up soil because, uh, you know, I guess pun intended in some way, but it's our, it's our, uh, you know, starting on the ground, our baseline <laughs> to yeah. have food for, from, it's, you know, for we, everything from plants to animals. <laughs> uh, we've, we've yeah. taken it for granted so much, uh, mm. you know, and, 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 you know, if, if you look, I'm going to sound like a grumpy old man now, but if you look back, uh, you know, 50 years or, or whatever, when we had much more diversified farming, and as you said, we were putting manure uh, and that organic matter back into the land and not just chemical fertilizers, we probably did a better job, maybe inadvertently, than we're doing today. But I think we're understanding it better now, and we, and we are starting to do... Uh, a, a better job. It's it's critically important, as you say. It's the foundation of our of our food system. Yes. So um, yes, I, I just thought that was so. That's a, very important to highlight because I think a lot of people. Well, I don't even think I know a lot of people. They don't understand because you know we're living in cities and uh, things now and. And I just, uh, you know, different people I, I meet, they don't understand like, um, you know, where their where their food comes from. You know, I was lucky enough to grow up with uh, two parents, even though I ended up growing up in a city, but they were uh, from farm families. So I knew a lot about, um, uh, you know, how things grow. And then we had our own little um, garden. So I got to see it in, in uh, firsthand, but a lot of people, they're, they're clueless. And so yep. um, just explaining that I think is an, important. Um, and now as we're getting closer to, I just have two more questions for you. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, technology because I believe uh, um, technology is playing a, a big role in food or will play a big role in food um, in, the, uh, in the future. And I wanted to have like a little bit of fun. Um, 
I don't know if you have ever been to the CES um, show, um, the Consumer um, Electronics Show. They had a, a segment on it on uh, food tech. Um, and then they had uh, these new, um, because of uh, everything that ha went on during the pandemic for restaurants, obviously a lot of people know that uh, restaurants uh, were, um, you know, uh, unfortunately affected um, in, in mass ways from uh, obviously not uh, having people uh, go to the restaurant. Uh, of course, they lost employees and all different things are happening with restaurants, as we know. Uh, so one of the things that they were talking about at the tech conference is how do we deal with like if a, if the pandemic continues, gets worse, or we even unfortunately experience another pandemic um, and uh, we want to keep the restaurant business. And so the new technology that's supposed to be, I don't know, uh, you know, they, they said in this article about five years away is that they were going to start um, using uh, robots and restaurants would be acting in a different way and how it would go or how it would be is that instead of having your traditional restaurant front like uh, i'm just going to make up a, a name like let's say you're going to luigi's restaurant for italian uh you no longer would go to necessarily uh, Luigi's restaurant, you would just go to like uh, your application, like a, a DoorDash that we have um, currently. Uh, and you could, uh, the difference now would be that you could order anything from anywhere in the world. So let's say Luigi is in Italy and you want food from Luigi's restaurant, but I'm here in California or you're there in Canada and you're like, I had such a great vacation, but you know, I really want, uh, you know, their, their, uh, clam, uh, their linguine clam sauce, uh, you know, yeah. special or whatever. Uh, so the, the future is that the recipe that they would use, um, at Luigi's would then be in this, um, like automated robot. The robot now is the cook. He just knows all the recipes. So restaurants would now, the, I guess the, uh, I guess what would you say? The moneymaker would be your recipe from your restaurant. So you would have the recipes that would be loaded in here and then, um, you would make money by how many people are ordering your different recipes, but the robot actually is the cook. So now you no longer have to have a staff to cook the food. Um, you know, you could, you know, make, I don't know, a million recipes. You could just be at your home <laughs> and be yeah. like a restaurateur. And then, uh, and then the food would be delivered to you through a drone, just drop at your door. And you'd yep. be like, Oh, I just went to Greece, <laughs> yeah. even though I'm in California. Um, so I don't know if you've been seeing that technology or other things that are, or that, I don't know if you've seen that. I think, I, you know what? I, 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 I think, uh, just like the rest of our lives, technology is going to fundamentally change the food system. And, mm -hmm. and we're seeing it right now. I mean, we're seeing it on the, at the farm level where we have autonomous tractors that, that, uh, that can go uh, and plant and harvest without a person sitting on them. You'll have a person with a smartphone who will get a, a notification if there's an issue. Uh, we have robotic milking for dairies much bigger adoption here in Canada than in the US, but there are in the US as well, where where the cow chooses to walk up to this machine, which then automatically milks her when she feels like she'd like to. Uh, and and that 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 helps us deal with uh, the, that helps us deal with the problem of labor availability. I've heard about those. Uh, you know, we'll see it in food processing during COVID. We saw big meat processing plants shut down because of outbreaks and, and we'll see increased automation. 
Now, some automation is tough in processing and and in in primary production because of the nature of the variability. You know, not all animals are exactly the same size. So if you're using a robot to build a car, every single one of those cars, you, that, that robot goes and puts the bolt in the same place every time. If you're doing it on a beef carcass, as an example, that where that line is to cut that muscle off isn't in the identical place every time. So, so the technology is tougher, but we're getting there. Um, the, the restaurant technology, I've seen some of it, uh, and I think it, it has uh, a real opportunity to do things differently. You know, we're, uh, we don't pay people in the food system enough. That goes from primary, you know, from, from migrant farm labor to people working in the kitchen of the restaurant, and, and we're having trouble getting people to do it. So that might uh, not only reduce the requirement for manpower, but also change. You'll need people who are much more technically adept. So I think technology is going to change things. Now, to go back to your specific example, Anne-Marie, you know, I'm still going to love going to a restaurant with an open kitchen where I can see the person who's making my meal. And, and to me, that's part of the experience. And so, uh, I don't think that Luigi's clam uh, fettuccine with clam sauce uh, will never enter my house. It may, uh, but uh, I may uh, go see Giancarlo make fettuccine with clam sauce because I'll enjoy watching him and I'll, I'll enjoy having the person come serve it to me. And and uh, I have a, a horrible admission to make. My wife is a little bit like uh, Meg Ryan from When Harry Met Sally, where where she has never seen a menu that is exactly to her liking. And she's always, uh, you know, because I have friends in the restaurant industry, I'm always sort of cringing, but she's always trying to say, can we do this or can we do this or can we do this? And that's going to be tougher to do. And and, and we're going to lose that ability. So will some of our, our restaurants go that way? Undoubtedly. Uh, will all of them? No. Uh, because, because it's not, restaurants aren't just about the food. They are about being somewhere different. They are about having an experience. Not everyone wants to sit at the end of the bar and watch the open kitchen. Uh, but some of us do, um, some of us like to be, uh, you know, uh, like that interaction with a server. Others of us couldn't care less and just want to get that food delivered to us. So, uh, will it provide an opportunity for a different experience and to get food to your home in a different way without a doubt? Uh, but, but it won't, it, like I said, with, to your first question, it isn't, it isn't the only future of food. It is part of the future of food. The, the, the other thing that, that, that I think, uh, we've lost a little bit and it's become obvious through through the pandemic with the rise of of delivery uh, delivery isn't cheap and sure we can eventually have drone unmanned drones that will drop uh, something on our front step mm-hmm. but some prepared food doesn't travel very well you know we mm-hmm. you know we have a we have a long history of pizza and Chinese food as delivery places because those foods travel reasonably well. And, and if I talk to, uh, to restaurateurs and say, 
you know, who, who maybe joined Uber Eats, but then left Uber Eats. If I ask them why, the, the first answer is it, it costs too much. I don't make enough margin. Uh, you know, there's the old adage, I have good news and I have bad news. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, ba- uh, the bad news is we're losing money on every unit. The good news is volume's up. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if we can get more customers, but we can't do it profitably, uh, that's not going to work for restaurants. So the delivery model, we as customers need to be willing to spend a little bit more, I think, for that to work. And the second reason they give is, uh, you know, I have I lose control of my customer's experience with that, right? If it sits, if you have a nice fettuccine with clam sauce uh, that that gets plated or put in, you know, a styrofoam package at 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 a at a restaurant or a ghost kitchen or whatever, and it then takes thirty five minutes to get to your door, and then it takes you ten minutes to. It's not as nice as it would have been if it came through the pass at at the restaurant and showed up at and then showed up at your table. So 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 I think delivery and technology has a future, but it's not the only future. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. I like going to the restaurant, especially after being locked up for a few years. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's just, just the electricity so of having uh, having people around and, and yes, yes. you know, uh, being able to ask which beer would you recommend or which meal would you recommend, and then you know, I'm a fan of open kitchens and watching people make it. There's mm-hmm. something there's something to that 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 we lose if we automate too much. Yes, I agree. Um, and my final question for you, uh, this is more of like a, a global uh, question, but how do you think society has become a reflection of the saying, you are what you eat? Uh, well, I th- <laughs> that, that, that's a great question. Um, uh, I, I think if you look, there's a couple of ways. Again, you ask these great questions and I'll answer it in a couple of ways. Uh, I think that uh, if you look at... Uh, the combination of the increase, the increase in convenience food, uh, the the fact that we're spending a bigger proportion of our of our money, our, our income on food prepared outside the home, and a lot of that is, I mean, don't get me wrong, quick serve. There's some great quick service restaurants. There's some great fast food, but we tend to eat this convenience food. Uh, we've driven down the cost by you know cheap flavor enhancers, our fat, sugar, and salt. So we're eating less healthy, and I think we're seeing that in health outcomes. Uh, we are what we eat. Uh, we weigh more than we've ever weighed as, as a society, North Americans. Uh, we have an obesity academic, uh, epidemic uh, mm-hmm. that's probably uh, killing more people than COVID is, frankly. Maybe uh, maybe I'm overstating it, but but we'll definitely last. It was the bread. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we we are definitely uh, we are we are definitely seeing a reflection of uh, some of the bad eating habits as a society. Um, now, uh, the 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 reverse of that is also true that people who are eating mindfully, and that's not just green smoothies and 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 whatever. If you you can eat a diverse omnivore diet uh, and be healthy if you eat mindfully if you're conscious if you say uh you know 
yeah, I'd love a steak, but I should have some vegetables here too. Uh, and, and make sure I get a broad range of both macro and micronutrients, uh, that, that people who eat well are, are healthier, are happier, are more productive. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the same as, you know, whatever, if, if you put good fuel in something, you'll get good outcomes. And I, and I think that, uh, that, that as a society, we've lost our way a little bit, you know, uh, I'm very conscious of food, uh, and my wife gives me a hard time all the time that I'm maybe should eat a bit more fruit and vegetables that, that, uh, you know, I should be conscious of maybe lowering my portions a little bit, but, but I think I eat reasonably well and I'm conscious about what, what I need, uh, to be healthy, to be productive, to be happy. Uh, and so, uh, we are definitely what we eat, uh, but we need to think about that or we could end up being something we didn't plan. Exactly. And I think, yes, I think we are all in the wake up call moment. Yep. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed our discussion. I learned a lot. Um, you gave me a new perspective on um, some things that I didn't think about. Um, and thank you for answering my question about the cow, because I've been feeling really bad about the cow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure someone else would have answered it differently. So, but if I if I've eased your mind a little bit, I'm 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 happy to have done it. I enjoyed our conversation. You asked great questions, and I'm I'm always happy to have. Uh, conversations about food yes well um okay well now this uh close so thank you um dr van Masso, for your time and insight to learn more about this topic or dr uh, michael van Masso, um go to the food focus podcast at www.foodfocuswealth.ca slash podcast if you have a passion for an unserved community, a social justice problem, or want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.work to start your project of change today. Subscribe to our mailing list at projectgood.work slash subscribe to get our episodes and blog articles sent to you each month, plus get a 10% discount on any project you start on projectgood.com or uh, .work, excuse me. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Project Good, where we're focused on what matters. 